1: Thank you for joining me for the 17th episode of my monthly feature, Our Voices, an inside look into my guest's life journey, one potentially very different than you might expect. We'll discuss ways to accelerate social change that levels the playing field and helps everyone live to their full potential. I encourage you to listen with curiosity and without judgment to this account of what it means to grow up, go to school, struggle, work, and live in our world. I hope... You'll see a bit of yourself in their journey and embrace, or more similar than not. It could not be more thrilled that you'll hear from my guest today, a celebrated international authority on neuroplasticity and mental health. For almost three decades, she's done major research around brain plasticity, studying areas in the brain critical for our ability to form and retain new long-term memories, as well as how aerobic exercise can be used to improve learning, memory, and higher cognitive ability. She is helping us to use exercise to make positive changes in our brains. Author of Healthy Brain Happy Life and Good Anxiety. Yes, folks, it is possible to transform your anxiety from a downer to a superpower. She's had more than 31 million views on Facebook of her TED Talk, The Brain-Changing Benefits of Exercise. It was the second most viewed TED Talk of 2018. Without further ado, I am so pleased to introduce my friend and world changer, professor of neuroscience and psychology in the Center of Neuroscience at New York University, Wendy Suzuki. Wendy, thank you for joining me on Our Voices.
2: Molly, I am so happy to be here and thank you for that lovely introduction. Oh my gosh.
1: Well, you're the, oh my gosh, I am just, you know, like you're just greatness. When I first met you messed and first saw you, I was thinking to myself, oh my God, I just want to be like 5% of her. Like You just have it on girl. So I, it's, uh, it's super, super gratifying for me to have a chance to amplify your voice here. Um, and I have to say to listeners, you know, we first met at one of Wendy's many energizing, I mean, highly energizing talks. So I'm telling you, the whole audience literally gets up and we exercise together. And so the TED Talk is really a much a much C for everyone. I am a huge fan of how you're helping people in their well-being. Um, but before we get to your professional work, I would really appreciate uh, listeners getting to know you as a person. So please share a bit about what it was like for you growing up and uh, finding your way.
2: Sure. So I grew up in, um, I was born in San Francisco to um, Japanese American, second generation Japanese American uh, parents. Uh, My mom and dad, um, they were born, both born in California, uh, both um, spent time in the Japanese American internment camps um, during the war, but then came out and um, uh, my father became a, an engineer and uh, my mother was the supporter, supporter and um, actually expert tennis player through through all of her life. And um, we grew up uh, in after moving from San Francisco to uh, the South Bay to Sunnyvale. We grew up in Sunnyvale uh, for all of my all of my adolescence Um and uh, yeah, it was, uh, it was a house uh, that really um, valued education. So my grandfather, my father's father was uh, the principal of the largest Japanese language school in all of California. And all of the Japanese and Japanese American families uh, were actually um, um, boarded buses to all the different uh, internment camps uh, during the war from my grandfather's school. And uh, we actually even saw pictures of of his school um, when we went, went with my parents to the Museum of Natural History together. We didn't know that there was going to be an exhibit on the Japanese American internment, but we're walking through the exhibit together. And my mom says, oh, there's your grandfather's school. And I said, what? And and so I mean she had lived there um, uh, in the in the housing right next to the school, and so it was there because um, Dorothea Lang actually took pictures uh, during during that um, evacuation, and um, so I grew up in a household that that really revered um, education. Uh, everybody knew that my brother and I were going to college. And uh, so, uh, but uh, growing up, we did a lot of sports. We played tennis, uh, followed my mom's footsteps into tennis. And uh, my brother was the big uh, basketball player. We played for the Buddhist church in Mountain View. And um, uh, fun aside, uh, the reverend for that Buddhist church when I was growing up, uh, because he saw the launch of my book, Good Anxiety, he got in touch after 30, 40 years to say, Wendy, how are you? And he sent me a copy of his memoir of uh, remembrances of, you know, um, a Buddhist, uh, Buddhist reverend in, in California. And so I'm really looking forward to reading that, but it was such a wonderful, you know, connection. And my piano teacher from high school also got in contact because she saw my book. So it's been old home week and such a lovely way to, Reconnect with all these people that you know. Kind of got me on my way. Piano um, uh, was so wonderful to teach me, um, teach me about the arts and and how amazing music was and um, and is and um, kind of teach my brain to read and and appreciate music and all of that. You know, social interaction with the Buddhist church and all the sports uh, really. Informed my growing up, and you know, I, I came to grow up to study the effects of exercise on the brain. If I didn't have those experiences, um, those really positive experiences, you know, on basketball teams and even baseball teams. I didn't like baseball as much, but basketball was really fun. Um, you know, it, it it all shapes what you end up doing. Um, so, I uh, went to uh, uh, my family's alma mater, which was UC Berkeley. And mm-hmm. so, I was so happy and proud to get in there. And, um, uh, and I had the great good fortune on the very first day of my freshman year at UC Berkeley to walk into the classroom of an extraordinary um, neuroscientist. Marion Diamond. I didn't know it. It was a freshman seminar. I didn't know what I was doing. I just thought her title, The Brain and Its Potential, was so fascinating. Yeah, I wanted to learn about the brain and its potential. And I walked in and I, I remember seeing this woman that who, who was so in control, um, uh, not in control, but was, was uh, commanded that classroom in the most benevolent way, but she commanded that classroom. And she she just made me want to be a neuroscientist. She made me want to study the brain. Um, She brought in a human brain in a hat box and she pulled it out with such, you know, dramatic flourish that all of us freshmen went, because we'd never seen a real human brain. And um, then she told us about the studies that she had done in the 60s showing that the adult human brain could change. If you give rats a big play play space to live in where they had lots of other rats to play with, um, their brains would actually get better. And that was the first demonstration of adult brain plasticity. So um, I not only wanted to be a neuroscientist, but I wanted to be a neuroscientist just like her. So I, I was so lucky to have walked into that classroom because in one moment, I got a role model. Um, I got a, a life direction and, um, I got a role model for both a kind of topic brain plasticity and a role model for teaching, because of course I wanted to be a teacher just like she was, um, just to give you a flavor. Um, it's not just me that she thinks that she's a good teacher. Google university goes around and, um, uh, has, um, uh, videos, all the most popular teachers around the country. She was number two of all the downloads of all the professors. So, it's not just me. <laughs> millions, millions of people uh, have uh, enjoyed and learned from her her dynamic way of teaching. And it really is getting you to appreciate that your brain is you. And so, why wouldn't you want to know about the brain? And so, I've really tried to to Take that with me um, in my teaching, and um,
1: so amazing! I just have yeah. to say, it's so amazing. And I am a wannabe <laughs> scientist. I'm like even more excited to be hanging out with you because it's just like you're so inspiring. Before we move on, I just want to hark back to the early days with the internment camps and. Was there any shadow about that? How did your parents talk about it? Were there matter of fact? Was you know, how did they just kind of roll with it? Because it doesn't feel like there was, I don't know, it just didn't feel like it held you back at all.
2: Well, you know, um, maybe that was their intention. So they never really talked about it. They just talked about, you know, the years that I was in camp. Not that I thought it was summer camp, but but it was um um, not a lot of details were provided, and so that trip to the natural, to the American Museum of Natural, not um, the what's the, the Smithsonian Museum about American history. That's where we saw that exhibit together when I was a postdoc. So I had graduated; um, I had gotten my PhD. It was you know I was an adult by then, and that was one of the deepest conversations we ever had about you know what it was really like and how bad the food was and how it kind of pulled about, pulled apart family structure because all the kids went and ran around with their friends all day. Um, it, it, it wasn't a normal kind of home situation because some of them were living in horse stalls or, or in barracks. Um, and so uh, they never really talked about it that much. And um, I recently did for Simon & Schuster that published Good Anxiety they asked me to do uh, a segment uh, called the first time you ever saw you in a book. And I did it. And I, the book I chose was uh, a book called when the emperor was divine by Julie Otsuka. And she, she is about my generation, maybe a few years older, but it is a fictionalized story about um, um, Japanese American family um, and their experience in the internment camps. And it was the first time that I had heard a full or I'd read a full narrative account of what that was like for a young family, uh, like my grandparents' family. My mom's family had eight children. My, my, my father's family had three children. And my grandfather, who was the principal, um, we knew that he had been thrown in a camp for, um, for uh, dangerous Dangerous Japanese people, because he was a principal and teaching, you know, young kids Japanese. That was considered <laughs> oh very dangerous. Oh my god! But you know, I, it took me a long time to realize that that meant that my two aunts and my father, who was, I think, what seven at the time, they were all alone. My grandmother had died, and so they stayed with neighbors. Um, they were all alone for quite a period of time before my grandfather got out, and um, then they uh, he was asked to teach. Um, naval Academy, um, naval guys in the Navy, Japanese, in Boulder, Colorado. So they were able to live outside of the camp system after him being thrown in the camp for dangerous people. Um, so, you know, the, the story took shape um, little by little over my entire lifetime. And I can't say I was, I felt held back by, by the fact uh, that they were in camp. But only in adulthood did it hit me that as children, both of my parents were in prison camp. They, they spent time in, it was a prison camp. And so, I, I think I, I'm only able to process and really understand the weight of that um, now. Um, so, uh, so, yeah, uh, they, they focused on the education and they focused on the um, you know if we're living in California, California has the best education, uh, you know, state uh government uh education in the world. UC Berkeley, all the UC systems. Let's take advantage of that. We're here. You know, we 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 can do that. And that's what we did.
1: That's so amazing to just stay high, transcend that and like, you know, pay it for forward for your kids to have an amazing life. Uh, Wednesday, did you feel, I mean, I had spent time in the Bay Area, which is a big melting pot. And so did you yeah. feel like you fit in ethnically? Was there a, Were there a lot of Asian kids, Japanese American kids?
2: Oh, there were so many Japanese American kids. And then my parents kind of hooked us up with this, um, the Buddhist church where, you know, It was a large Buddhist church in Mountain View, and they had such great programs. First, we went to Japanese school, which I did not like as a young kid. Saturday morning, what do I want to do? I want to watch cartoons. I don't want to go learn Japanese. But no, I had to go to Japanese school. But then that led to all the different team sports, and and that was great fun. And it it really, um, you know, there were just so many – Japanese-American kids just like me, um, uh, third-generation Japanese-Americans. Uh, Japanese-American. So I felt like I absolutely fit in there. And there were plenty at my high school, too, at Homestead High School, which was actually the same high school that Steve Jobs and Wozniak went to. Um, uh, so, uh, yeah, I, I felt um, I didn't appreciate how many Japanese and Japanese-Americans there were until… I went to San Diego to do graduate school, and then I went to New York and 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 uh, Washington DC. Not nearly as many, not nearly a, a strong a community. Um, but that was that was nice growing up with um, um, within that kind of uh, Japanese American Buddhist uh, uh, youth group uh, organization. I really that, appreciated that.
1: That is so great, and I feel this confidence. You know, you kind of hear about Asians being meek and not able to express themselves, you're so forthright and out there. And it's just just since like out of the womb, you've been like that, Wendy?
2: No. In fact, I write about this in Good Anxiety. Um, One of the things that I realized when I wrote this book is that I was an anxiety denier, or, or a hider is probably a, uh, um, a better word. Uh, I had a lot more anxiety when I dug into my own anxiety than I admitted to myself before I started writing the book. So before it's like, oh, anxiety is uh, definitely a, lots of people, not, not be me, but lots of people have anxiety. Let's, let's look at this. This is a great topic. And then I started getting into it. It's like, oh my God, I have a lot of anxiety. And in fact, my oldest anxiety that I've had since uh, I was a little girl is um, social anxiety. I was a very, very, very shy, awkward wallflower of um, a, a girl growing up. Um, smart, but I, I had, you know, I had a hard time asking questions in class because I was um, I was afraid of being wrong. Like all students, <laughs> they don't want to <laughs> make a fool of themselves. And I had many years. Of that, you know, irrespective of what my GPA was, it, it, it's a fear that's part of social anxiety. And of course, I've now I'm a speaker and I'm a professor, and I, I you know, I have a lot of I have skills. <laughs> I have skills now, but the truth is, I've I still, um, particularly in social situations, not in work situations, but you know, um, I still I still revert back, and it's like, oh yeah, there's that anxiety again. Um, but it was a decision that it was a lot more fun to, to, to have my voice heard than, than not. And I developed those skills to speak up in the classroom. And at first I was just imitating Marion Diamond, my, my professor, but then it became me. And so, and then I applied it to more and more places and I did more talks, moth talk. I did the Ted talk, of course, that came a little bit later. But um, I I was, in fact, every undergraduate course that I taught at NYU helped me get more and more confident in, in, um, you know, taking charge of that classroom, um, directing that knowledge being conveyed from me to them. And so, I developed my skills in the classroom.
1: Thank you for sharing that folks. Everyone's paying attention. Okay. You're not born this way. You can work at it yeah. <laughs> and, and really grow. Okay. Before we get back to the anxiety topic, cause I'm, we're excited to unpack that. So going into the, I mean, you know, the higher education, was that just like a given once you'd realized that you were going to be the next Marion, then it that just kind of propel you through your decisions. And was it hard to figure out where you wanted to go?
2: Um, so, I knew I wanted to uh, go to graduate school. After, after I met Marion and I joined her lab and I, I did my senior thesis with her, yes, I wanted to go to graduate school. And uh, that was much more interesting to me than medical school. And so, I applied. I, you know, I didn't really know what I was doing, uh, but I somehow got into – I had good grades and um, I got into a really great program at UC San Diego huge number of neuroscience there, which was great because I knew I wanted to do research, but I didn't know exactly what I wanted to do. And I ended up um, kind of like my luck in walking into Marion's classroom that very first day, um, walked into a triad of three researchers that were just starting to figure out what, what was the network of brain structures that are really important from memory. There was a lot of conflicting results um, coming out right at that time. And there were three people at UCSD and the Salk Institute that's right across the street, this beautiful architectural. Um, wonder of the Salk Institute that were focused on this problem, and you know, I realized that that part of your success in graduate school is the moment that you arrive, and is there that key question that you can glom onto and and make your own? And I found one, and mentors that that really led me through and and let me kind of shine and learn from that experience, and. Um, it was a discovery. I, I tell people that I miss those early days of going to science meetings when I first got to graduate school because people would get up and yell at each other. No, that's not how it is. The, you did that experiment wrong. You did that experiment wrong. It wasn't scary. It was passionate. And it's like, no, it's this way because I know how they did this. And this is, But there were so many things to figure out, and it was such an exciting time. Um, and that's how I got to learn how to do science in that, in that environment in at UC San Diego. Yeah, oh, that just sounds so fun. I, I mean, I'm, it, I'm, yeah, it was fun. It was really fun. However, you know, it wasn't all a bed of roses. For example, um, my, one of my mentors, um, was the head of the Animal Welfare Committee. And they, this is in the era of um, the people for the ethical treatment of animals. And I am all for the ethical treatment of animals. But what they did is they burned my advisor's body in effigy every year on the lawn in front of our lab, And I remember being so scared. They said, okay, this is world... PETA day and there's going to be extra police. And so if you don't have your card key, we will drag you out and arrest you. And so, but I had to go into the lab to get something and I got there and there's a, there's a punch pad pad to put in the number. And I got so scared. I forgot the number. And then I thought, oh no, they're going to arrest me because I don't know the number. (laughs) And I ran home. It was, it was very scary in that week. Uh, for years, and I was in graduate school for six years. So, um, and it was hard work. And you know, I spent hours and hours and hours in dark rooms looking in microscopes. Uh, but I got this cool, interesting. I, I got to discover new brain areas that we didn't realize were really, really important for memory, and they were kind of um, um, they were they were lost in the in the cracks. Um, um, nobody had, had really focused on them. So I did anatomical studies about them and I looked at the effects of, of removing these areas on the effects and they had these enormous effects on memory. And so, um, yeah, it was a very, very exciting, um, set of studies to do.
1: Can you help listeners? Cause I think a lot of folks may not appreciate, I certainly don't. You know what's involved with getting research and grants and money and stuff like that. So a little bit of the block and tackle just for people to yeah. appreciate, or maybe it was just all funded and you had like you know all the money coming out of the ceiling and you were didn't have to. Well,
2: worry. no, no. Um, every penny that you get to do this research is precious because you uh, have to write a grant to the federal government, and you are in the same pool. As the Nobel Prize laureate that won for your area of study, and we have we have one, two, three, four in. Okay, so three of them are not in the United States, but one of them is Eric Kendell uh, up the uh, in uptown here in New York at Columbia University. And so it doesn't matter whether you're a first time um, assistant professor or you are Nobel Prize winner. You go in the same pot, and so. that's a little scary. Mm -hmm. And so of course they give special consideration to first time researchers. It's not like, you know, the Nobel prize winners get all of the funds, but it is, it is, you know, the most stressful thing that you do is write these grants. And so once you get one, every penny you want to spend wisely, you want to have the best people in your lap. You want to not waste any one penny on uh, an, Irrelevant relevant experiment, but the thing is, you don't know how these experiments are gonna come out. And you have to think hard about what is the best way, what is that key experiment that's going to get you to the next step. Um, and so as a graduate student, when I was doing those studies at UC San Diego, I didn't have to worry about that. It was my uh, supervisors, the the heads of the labs that, that worked really hard to uh, get those grants and they were well-funded and so, um, so I felt very privileged, but I learned, I, I had to learn it the hard way, like everybody else, when I got my own lap. And then you realize the weight uh, of um, the it's like fundraising. If you're starting a startup and you have to go out to your VCs and you have to make your pitch and you have to compete against all of the, you know, Pelotons and the, you know, Fitbits out there that, you know, pave the way. And uh, But you have to convince them that you have the best idea. And um, it's very much like that.
1: How did you decide to go off and do your own lab? And that's, uh, that's your own little company.
2: Uh, so that was an obvious, that, that took no decision. So um, if you take the conventional route uh, of graduate school, um, all of these teachers are are training you to become the next great scientist in academia, so that's what I wanted to be. I wanted to go and not uh, kind of carry out the experiments that they had written in their grants. I wanted to write my own grants, run the lab, and decide on the direction of my own lab. That was that's the conventional uh, route. So I was very very conventional for the first 25 years of my career. Um, uh, first, you know, getting an undergraduate degree, going directly to graduate school, six years there, four years as a postdoc at NIH, and then directly into a um, faculty position. So, you can't get more conventional than that for, for academia. And, um, and I loved my, those first, you know, I would say 15 years at NYU um, doing exactly that. Uh, but then, um, and you've heard this story, Molly, uh, then something happened. Uh, I got I got really stressed out uh, um, trying to get tenure, and I was successful, but I ended up gaining 25 pounds at the same time, and um, I was not feeling good, and I was I was in a bad mood, and I had developed insomnia, and so I had this kind of uh, um, come to Jesus moment when I went on a river rafting trip. Um, uh, uh, in Peru to give myself a little vacation, but I had no social network either. So I went by myself cause I had no friends at that time. Cause all I did was work to try and get tenure. And, uh, I, I said, okay, you know, I am the weakest person on this trip. I'm in my thirties and I need to, I need to, you know, step up. And so I went, I, the day that I got back from this trip to Peru, I had mosquito bites on mosquito bites And I still went to the gym with all of my ugly mosquito bites and said, I need to join. I need to sign up right now. And um, that was great. It was exactly what I needed. It brought me back to my roots of growing up in California and being active and playing sports. And and so I just translated that into step classes and kickboxing classes and all the different classes that I just love. And I could feel that my body kind of said, okay, thank you so much. Now, finally, you got back, you know, you gave me what I needed. Um, and that led to my realization that that after a year and a half losing 25 pounds and getting really regular at the gym, um, oh, my God, it was it was affecting my brain in, in such a positive way. And that's when I started to get more unconventional because um, tenured faculty uh, do not switch their research program. They just don't. You, you stay, you do the same thing for your entire career because you have all your contacts. You've you you've built up your reputation. But I got so fascinated with exercise that I said, and I wanted to study it in people. I wanted to study the effect that I was seeing in myself. It is better memory, better, better focus, hugely improved mood. And so, and so that's when I started getting unconventional. And then I did something even more conventional, I wrote a book that was not for academics. I wrote a book for the general public, and that was Healthy Brain, Happy Life. So, um, so I started kind of going off the rails uh, right at that moment.
1: <laughs> Wild one! I love yes. it. <laughs> it's so fabulous! Oh my gosh! So, uh, so I am hearing you on the all you do is work. So, you know, personal life. Talk a bit about the sacrifices. You know, yeah. feel lonely. How, how have you kind of? Come full circle on that.
2: Yeah. So, you know, this come to Jesus was after. So uh, for those of you who aren't familiar with the joys of academia, um, they give you six years. They give you a chunk of money and they say, okay, start your research lab and change the world. And so start your research lab, try and find a question, try and get some foothold, try and get some, you know, really useful findings. You have six years to do it. And at the end of six years, all your peers will then judge you. And if you are good enough, you can stay. And if you are not, you must leave. And so it's kind of, but you know, the the positive side, if they let you stay, it's a position for life. It is tenure. So that's good. But... You know, talk about anxiety. The humiliation is partially what drove me. And I mean, I was at first, it was so much fun, and I loved it. But then, as I got closer to the six years, it's like, oh my god! You know, one of my my main advantage is I don't have kids, and, and I don't have all I, I could I could work all the time. Okay, I'm going to do that. Um, and so that was my choice. And I not only worked all the time, I just. Ate takeout all the time, which was the main driver of my 25-pound weight gain, along with the stress and anxiety I was giving myself. And um, so yeah, it was it was like that. Not I, I wasn't kidding. I had no friends when I decided to go on an adventure travel vacation. And so I went on my own. So I've been always been independent and maybe even too independent. Um and, uh, uh, and I, 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 um, you know, got through that way, but the thing about coming back and going to the gym, it's like, oh, I started to meet new people and I started seeing them in these classes and I started making new friends, uh, at the gym and, um, I kind of, you know, learned, learned how to develop a, a social life at that point. And, um, um, and started to study this, this uh, topic I was passionate about. Um, and so it was, um, uh, but actually the, the, the other thing that drove me to study exercise is it wasn't all happy and, oh, look at what it did for my brain. That was absolutely part of it. But at the same time, I was noticing all these brain benefits in myself. Um, my mom called me right at that moment and said, you know, your dad isn't feeling well. And he got lost driving home from the 7-Eleven where he goes to get his afternoon coffee every day for the last 20 years. And that spatial memory is dependent on the structure that I was studying in my lab, the hippocampus, critical for memory. And I knew that was a sign that he could have not only dementia, but possibly Alzheimer's dementia. And um, as, I, as I got them the best neurologist that I could find and as I had you know, my, my regular calls, because I was in New York by this time, New York University, and they were back in California in Sunnyvale, I noticed that all the things that had improved in me had diminished in him. His memory was terrible. His focus was terrible. His mood was terrible because he knew that he had terrible memory and attention. And he was a, he, he was a very smart person. He knew that, that something was wrong. And um, so I realized that all of the exercise effects is not only just a, co- not just, but a cognitive enhancer for working, working stiffs like me, but could be a long-term protection for brains like my father's brain. Um, maybe not when he was late 70s when this happened, but um, uh, for earlier and certainly what I was doing for my brain, which is regular exercise. So there were a number of things, both happy and sad, that drove me to want to study the effects of exercise on the brain.
1: Uh, wow. That's very deeply personal. Uh, so, you know, I, I just, I, I wouldn't have enough time. Okay. So yes. let's, let's unpack this topic um, since we're there for folks about you know, the exercise, what people can do, you know, this latest book with anxiety, you know, it's a little mini lecture here, folks, you get to listen to <laughs> Wendy's high points. So, you know, seriously, I, I'd love for you to share. Um, And, you know, it'd be, be really wonderful to just start to open people's eyes, because I think so much of our well-being, you know, we can control way more than we think, Wendy. Yeah. And so I think I, what I love about your work, it's so empowering. It's like, you mm-hmm. can do yeah. it.
2: Yes. Yeah. Um, You can do it, you don't need fancy clothes, you just need to move your body. And the things that um, kind of, I had to do a 30 second lecture uh, um, uh, this morning off the cuff. So I'm not gonna do 30 seconds, but let me do a minute. Okay, here's the challenge. So here's what you need to know about the transformative effects of exercise on the brain. One, every time you move your body, you are releasing a whole range of neurochemicals in your brain. I call it a neurochemical bubble bath that you give your brain. And those chemicals include things that you've heard of, serotonin, dopamine, noradrenaline. They are increasing your positive mood states. They're taking away your anxiety or diminishing your anxiety, depression states, uh, hostility states, and um, there are other good things in there like growth factors that are overall really good for your brain. So every time you move your body, go take a walk outside, go up and down the stairs, walk around your dining room table. That is helping your brain. Now, let's imagine you give your brain this wonderful bubble bath regularly, not just one one off, but regularly. What this does is it gives your brain growth factors on a regular basis, and those growth factors go straight to your hippocampus, critical for long-term memory, and it does something truly extraordinary. It stimulates the birth of brand-new brain cells in your memory-making area of the brain. Now, how many of you want a better memory and a bigger, fatter, fluffier hippocampus? I'm imagining all of your hands are up right now because my hand is way up. And so this is what regular moving your body does. It will grow new cells in your hippocampus, make it bigger, fatter, fluffier. And as an extra bonus, it also improves the function of your prefrontal cortex, not by growing new cells. Um, It looks like uh, those areas you get more connections or synapses. So imagine these two areas growing as every single time you move your body, and it doesn't matter whether you're 15 or 55, once you or 65 or 75, you start moving your body, you have that physical capacity. You are starting that process. Um, you're rolling. And finally, the last key piece of information: hippocampus and prefrontal cortex are the two brain areas that are most susceptible to aging and neurodegenerative disease states. So now you have this even more powerful tool, not just to make your hippocampus and prefrontal cortex work better, but to stave off aging and neurodegenerative disease states because you are, you are, every time you move, you are making these brains bigger, fatter, fluffier, stronger. So you're not gonna cure Alzheimer's, but you're gonna make the hippocampus so strong that it's gonna take a long time For this disease to kill those cells enough so you start experiencing those memory deficits. And that's exactly what dementia and Alzheimer's does. It kills those cells in the hippocampus. So what I'm trying to do right now is make as many hippocampus cells. So that is why simply moving your body can start with walking. They'll give you the mood effects. You need to increase your heart rate with more of a power walk or aerobic activity to get the um, 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 growth factors going. But everybody can do it. Everybody can do it today. And it will give you a stronger, more powerful brain in the future. Oh my God, I cannot
1: wait for my dad to soak all this up because <laughs> this is exactly, you know, this is so empowering when you have the knowledge. And, you know, like you said, I, I was watching the uh, rewatch the Ted talk. Like you have people pumping their arms up in the air. You don't have to be doing anything fancy with weights exactly. or what have you. Right. Wow. It's very, very like whatever you're doing around the house, gardening, shoveling. Yes. Right. Um, it's so fabulous.
2: You uh, asked me what I did during the pandemic. And here is my favorite discovery during the pandemic. My discovery is that housework is aerobic. I'm like, Oh my God, that, so it goes in every day. And I, I went all out, like I would mop the whole floor. I would move all the furniture, mop all the whole floor and uh, move all the furniture back in an hour. I, okay, I have a small apartment, I'm in New York, but still it's like, whew, that was a good workout. And then I got this sparkly clean apartment, never been cleaner in the entire time I've lived here and a great aerobic workout. So yes, you can combine things and make them even more powerful
1: love it. I love it. I love it. Um, speaking of pandemic, cause you, you know, I am, I am very social, but I would say I'm an introvert. I derive my energy hmm. from within. So the pandemic was not stressful for me. Like, a, you know, not, so I'm just wondering, how did you, uh, how were you in that being yeah. in, was that easy for yeah. you or was it challenging?
2: Generally it was easy for me. I am, um, Uh, I'm also more of an introvert, but I kind of got that social fix from my little pods of people, friends in New York that we would meet safely and and, and, uh, be careful. But I also uh, started a weekly Sunday tea meditation group um, that really, really took me through the pandemic. I, I loved it was just a 15 minute short little meditation that people can jump on as you did several times, Molly, it was so wonderful to have you. And, um, that, that was my lifeline. And the only bad thing, of course, is my worry. My mom was, you know, by herself uh, by that point in um, Sunnyvale. And um, she's very independent. She she got a lot of growth factor from all the tennis that she played. <laughs> and so, so uh, she's very independent. But, you know, it was scary uh, to have her. And, and there's family there, too. But still, it was uh, a little scary to be so far away and no airplanes going. You know, what if there was an emergency? Um, Oh, that's not true. There were, there were airplanes going, but I, did, I really didn't want to ride airplanes, you know, early on in the pandemic. That was just so scary. Um, so some scariness like everybody, but, but um, the, the, the working at home part, I, I learned a lot. I got a lot out of it. I, I felt like I was very productive and I, um, I ordered my day. So it wasn't all work. Um, and I had my tea meditations and workouts and, and um, um, kitty cats and all of that to help me.
1: <laughs> yeah, no, I did. I loved the meditations. It was really great for you to pull people together, and it was so. I found that a really great part of the you know the pandemic. We wouldn't wish upon anyone that just people could come together and just see them see others for who they were. I felt. Yeah. I felt an openness um, and much less judging. I think everyone was a little bit more raw and, and uh, I think that made us more human, which was amazing. Uh, So, okay. The, oh my gosh, time-wise. Okay. The, the latest, um, the, the area of work that you're on now, this latest book share with listeners um, gems from that.
2: So let me, Kind of walk you through. So it's called good anxiety. And um, first, just definition why is anxiety good exactly? Um, anxiety is good because evolutionarily, anxiety evolved to protect us. Um, it is protective, it is actually essential for our survival. And um, imagine a lion coming at you. That um, anxiety caused by the vision of the lion, and, and then that fight or flight response uh, that that either you know makes you decide to fight the lion or run away is a survival mechanism. And even though you're thinking, you know, I'm not feeling protected one little iota by my anxiety right now, um, it is protective. And the reason why it's not protective is that our volume, collective societal volume of anxiety is way too high for it to be protective now. And so a lot of the book is step one, learning how to turn the volume down on your own anxiety so you can get it in that zone that helps you make, give the best talk you've ever given in your life. The best talks I've ever given, I am a little scared before I go on stage. I, because that, that fear, that anxiety is telling me, this means something to you. You really want to do well because of this, this, and that. It is a reminder. If I have too high anxiety. I start losing my words. But if I can kind of channel it at that optimum level, I give great, great talks. And um uh, so the book is full of tools. There's a whole toolbox section, uh, ways to decrease your anxiety from laughter and why it works to positive self-tweeting that came from Lynn manuel Miranda's book about how he positively self-tweets in the morning and the evening. I loved that. Um, to exercise and meditation. So something for everybody. So what happens when you turn the anxiety down? Well, the value of that comes from just the general value of understanding what those uncomfortable emotions are for. And what I explain in the book is those uncomfortable emotions teach you about what you value most in life. And um, instead of saying, oh, God, I'm just so anxious. I I want it to go away. Um, When that anxiety volume is turned down a little bit, you can step back. And turn in and ask, well, why am I always scared in this situation? Oh, it becomes, it comes from my lifelong, you know, social anxiety that I've had since I was a child. Okay, if it's that, how can we um, how can we use some of the tools to be creative about addressing it in a different way? Coming to it, uh, creativity is a big part of this book because the kinds of shifts in mindset that I'm inviting people to do. At its core, take a lot of creativity. And in a sense, uh, people that have anxiety have all of these wonderful opportunities to be creative, to address all of these situations of anxiety, understand it for what it is. You're not going to get rid of the um, uncomfortable feelings because they're valuable. But to approach these things in a different way, can you take a walk before the anxious situation? Can you deflect? to uh, less anxious parts of the conversation so that you can kind of prep for that difficult part. So many different ways to address it. And finally, we get to uh, the secret sauce of the book, which is um, the gifts or superpowers that come from anxiety. And um, I'm going to share one that we set up for uh, in, in earlier in the podcast, and that is um, the superpower of empathy. So I realized this in myself. So this superpower comes from my personal longest-standing anxiety, my social anxiety, and years in the classroom being afraid that I was going to say something stupid. So I wasn't going to ask a question. Well, now I find myself in the front of the classroom, and I realized that unconsciously, every class that I taught, I always tried to, you know, come early, stay late. Uh, answer those questions. So, all of those scared students that didn't want to you know, raise their hand in class could still get their questions answered because I remembered that feeling. I used my anxiety to create a superpower of empathy for my teaching. And for everybody that has an anxiety that they've dealt with for a short or long time, that becomes your superpower because you can take that anxiety and that feeling, that knowledge of what it what situation it comes into, and turn it outwards, and, and be empathetic to somebody else. And I don't know what we need more in this day and age, um, but more empathy. So that's what we end with uh, the superpowers of our own anxiety.
1: It is the, I have, uh, people ask me, you know, what, what do you see missing at work? And, you know, and I just say, look, at, it's this notion of empathetic understanding of each other. What is it like to be in the other person's shoes? Yeah. Um, you know, not to make it good or bad or right or wrong. Um, but I, you know, I think an easy way to think about that is it's just fundamental to connection. Yes, exactly. And, yeah. And uh, so I, it does, it's not surprising. You know, I'm kind of nodding my head a lot as you're talking. People <laughs> could imagine that because it's, you know, this whole say it's guiltfully thing. You know, you have to, you're getting in good relationship with yourself. Right, you. so Wendy's got you've got all these tools to help people. You know, I always say, you know, don't be your worst enemy; be your best friend, and and try mm-hmm. to work yeah. it through and not make yourself bad or wrong. I love how you're saying it's not, you know, there, there's positive aspects of it. Yes. You know, it is a bit of that Taoist. You know, who knows what's good or or bad? Um, gosh, so 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 amazing. Um, just a little fast forward for us. I know you've got this very full portfolio now, but I. You know, you've know, you had this just amazing career, and I'm just kind of curious when you think about, I call it Wendy Inc., um, other things off, off in the future that you might want to explore? I mean, I'm just curious, just for listeners' sake, how you might think about your own professional growth.
2: Yeah, so I definitely want to continue with the book writing and kind of build on uh, healthy brain, happy life, good anxiety uh, um, with with more books. I want to continue speaking. I am. Uh, I have um, um, explored the startup space uh, with a uh, health tech startup. Um, that I call brain body that quantifies the effects of physical activity on the brain. So you can take assessments before and after a workout and see exactly how much that soul cycle workout, for example, uh, change different aspects of brain function that we know is sensitive to are sensitive to um, physical activity. I am, um, I am thinking hard about how to roll that speaking courses, quantification into my next uh, Wendy Inc. Uh, uh, project, and that is an active uh, area of uh, creativity in my life right now. I'm not sure how it's going to go. Uh, it really, I'm, I'm seeing where good anxiety and the book launch, which I've been so busy with since you know September 7th when it came out, it's been so fun to do. Um, where where that's going to take me, and I think that will give me a good landing spot to say, okay. I think now here is here are my biggest tools, my strongest tools to move forward in a um in a way to create something that will help people. So um that's how I'm thinking about it right now.
1: Oh, gee, you're just so I am cheering for you. Like I am so inspired from for you um about you. I uh, so a few things just to wrap. Okay, so um You know, when you're looking back and I know there's like way more ahead, which is what's really frightening about you. Like, oh my God, look at what she's done. And like, I can see the best yes to come, which is so exciting. You know, what are you most proud of of, uh, so far?
2: Oh, um, what am I most proud of? I think I'm most proud of my relationship with my family.
1: Love it. Love it. Thank you for that. And then, um, you know, maybe close with a top takeaway. You've shared a lot for our listeners, but kind of in listening to yourself and wondering if you have a top takeaway for yourself from our chat.
2: I so appreciate um, the questions about my growing up and um, particularly the Asian experience. I think um, there's there's new heightened recognition of, of the role of Asians and Asian Americans in our life today. And so I think it's so important what you're doing to highlight that. So I, I really appreciate that. You are the first of many, many podcasts that I've done that have asked that question and focused on that. So I really appreciate that. Um, and uh, yeah, so I think you were the, and this conversation was the most 360 of my life uh, from from growing up to uh, good anxiety. So so I I like it for that. I I think it's uh, very memorable for that for me.
1: I love it. I have the biggest smile you could possibly imagine. I am so grateful for how generously uh, you've shared. Your passion just comes through in spades. Um, We're here to help people take advantage of exercise is the most transformative thing we can do for our brain, you know, to take a relationship with anxiety and turn it more constructively. I cannot thank you enough for being more than your fair share part of the solution. And uh, if in any little way, I might be helpful to you in the future. uh, Let me know, Wendy, I am cheering for you. You take good care.
2: Thank you so much, Molly.
1: Folks, guess uh, the world's going to be best, uh, even better with people like her. So let me just share a thought for the week inspired by Wendy, and that is be the change you want to see in the world. And that's a wrap. Thank you for tuning in. Please be part of the solution and kindly share this show. Amplify Wendy's voice. Reflect on your own top takeaways and know I'm cheering for you to be who you are and say what needs to be said so that you and those around you have a shared reality, essential to make the best decisions, execute with speed and achieve outstanding outcomes at work and in life.
0: Thanks for listening to Say It Skillfully with host Molly Chang. Join us again for more ways to say it skillfully next Tuesday, 11 a.m. Eastern Time, 8 a.m. Pacific on the Voice America Business Channel.